we continue with the fourth and final part of Judge Chutkin's memorandum opinion, picking up with Part 5 of the opinion. Part 5. Double Jeopardy. Defendant's constitutional motion next posits that the prosecution violates double jeopardy because defendant was tried and acquitted in earlier impeachment proceedings arising out of the same course of conduct. But neither traditional double jeopardy principles nor the impeachment judgment clause provide that a prosecution following impeachment acquittal violates double jeopardy. A. Double Jeopardy Clause The Fifth Amendment provides that no person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. To be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb means to face the possibility of multiple criminal punishments for the same offense. A purportedly civil penalty only counts in the double jeopardy context if the statutory scheme was so punitive in either purpose or effect as to transform it into a criminal penalty. As long as separate prosecutions charge an individual with violating different laws, the prosecutions are considered separate offenses under the Double Jeopardy Clause, and the second prosecution passes constitutional muster. When the same act or transaction violates two distinct provisions of the same statute, there are distinct offenses only if each provision requires proof of a fact which the other does not. In contexts involving different sovereigns, such as the federal government and a state government, a person may be tried for violating laws that have identical elements and could not be separately prosecuted if enacted by a single sovereign. The indictment here does not violate double jeopardy principles. First, impeachment threatens only removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States, neither of which is a criminal penalty. Nor does defendant argue that there are civil penalties that should be construed as criminal penalties. Second, the impeachment proceedings charged defendant with incitement of insurrection, which is not charged in the indictment. Although there are few decisions interpreting the analogous federal statute that prohibits inciting any insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof, it is well established that incitement typically means advocacy directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action that is likely to incite or produce such action. None of the statements under which defendant is charged require the government to prove incitement. The impeachment proceedings and this prosecution, therefore, did not twice put defendant in jeopardy of life or limb for the same offense. Defendant also contends his prosecution violates double jeopardy principles because the distinct branches of government are part of one single sovereign. But even assuming that is true, defendant does not argue that impeachment carries a criminal sanction or that the impeachment proceedings were based on the same offense as charged in the indictment. 
Instead, he argues that different double jeopardy principles would apply to prosecutions following impeachments, referencing only the impeachment judgment clause for support. But as discussed below, the impeachment judgment clause provides only that prosecutions following convictions at impeachment are constitutionally permissible. It does not create special double jeopardy principles. Consequently, the indictment does not violate the double jeopardy clause. B. Impeachment Judgment Clause The Impeachment Judgment Clause provides that judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. As explained above, the first part of the clause limits the remedies available in impeachment, and the second part provides that even if a person is convicted in impeachment proceedings, they may still be subject to criminal prosecution. As the Office of Legal Counsel noted, the second part makes clear that the restriction on sanctions in the first part was not a prohibition on further punishments. Rather, those punishments would still be available, but simply not to the legislature. Defendant contends the impeachment judgment clause contains a negative implication. If a person is not convicted in impeachment proceedings, they may not be prosecuted. In statutory interpretation, the expressio unius canon, which provides that expressing one item of an associated group or series excludes another left unmentioned, does not apply unless circumstances support a sensible inference that the term left out must have been meant to be excluded. Because defendant's reading is not supported by the structure of the Constitution, the historical context of the impeachment clauses, or prior constitutional precedents, expressio unius does not apply. The impeachment judgment clause does not provide that acquittal by the Senate during impeachment proceedings shields a president from criminal prosecution after he leaves office. 1. Structure Structural considerations support reading the impeachment judgment clause as the plain language suggests. First, as the government notes, impeachment and prosecution serve distinct goals within the separation of powers. Impeachment is designed to enable Congress to protect the nation against officers who have demonstrated that they are unfit to carry out important public responsibilities, whereas prosecution is designed to penalize individuals for their criminal misdeeds. Impeachment proceedings provide far fewer procedural safeguards than do prosecutions, and accordingly, Congress may not dispense criminal penalties in impeachment proceedings. Impeachment is not a substitute for prosecution. Second, the Senate may acquit in impeachment proceedings even when it finds that an official committed the acts alleged. 
For example, the Senate may acquit because it believes the acts committed do not amount to high crimes and misdemeanors, because the Senate believes it lacks authority to try the official, or for partisan reasons. Indeed, the framers anticipated that impeachments might spark partisan division. Acquittal on impeachment does not establish the defendant's innocence. Defendant contends that impeachment serves to protect officials from political attacks by their enemies, and allowing prosecution following impeachment acquittal would undermine that protection. But politics are likely to play even larger a role in impeachments than in prosecutions, given that impeachments are conducted by elected officials politically accountable to their constituents, whereas prosecutions are conducted by appointed officials, most of whom may not be removed without cause. And former officials like defendant, rather than current officials, are also less likely to be politically attacked because they no longer hold the power and authority of political office. 2. Historical Context Defendant claims that his interpretation of the Impeachment Judgment Clause reflects the original public meaning of the Impeachment Clauses. Considerable historical research undermines that contention. Most notably, the Founders repeatedly acknowledged that impeachment acquittals would not bar subsequent prosecutions. For example, James Wilson, who participated in the Constitutional Convention, observed that officials who may not be convicted on impeachment may be tried by their country. Edward Pendleton, who was president of the Virginia Ratifying Convention, similarly observed that an acquittal would not bar a resort to the courts of justice, a conclusion that James Madison called extremely well-founded. Justice Story, too, described that, following impeachment, a second trial for the same offense could be had, either after an acquittal or a conviction in the court of impeachments. Founding-era officials similarly acknowledged that an acquittal at impeachment proceedings would not bar a subsequent prosecution. For example, during the first federal impeachment trial, Representative Samuel Dana contrasted impeachment proceedings with criminal trials, stating that impeachment had no connection with punishment or crime as whether a person tried under an impeachment be found guilty or acquitted, he is still liable to a prosecution at common law. None of the sources defendant cites refute that conclusion. 3. Prior Precedent Defendants' additional arguments invoking past constitutional precedents are similarly unavailing. He first cites Justice Alito's dissent in Vance. In Vance, the Supreme Court held that a sitting president is not immune from state criminal subpoenas, nor does a heightened standard apply to such requests. In so holding, the majority opinion reiterated that no citizen, not even the president, is categorically above the common duty to produce evidence when called upon in a criminal proceeding. 
Justice Alito's dissent, moreover, noted that under the impeachment judgment clause, criminal prosecution, like removal from the presidency and disqualification from other offices, is a consequence that can come about only after the Senate's judgment, not during or prior to the Senate trial. All Justice Alito's dissent observed is that, temporally, any prosecution must follow the judgment on impeachment. No official shall be subject to simultaneous impeachment proceedings and criminal prosecution. The dissent does not support the view that if impeachment proceedings end in acquittal, subsequent prosecution violates double jeopardy. Defendant also cites Fitzgerald for the proposition that the threat of impeachment alone is the proper remedy against a president for any official misfeasance. But as already explained, Fitzgerald is meaningfully distinguishable. It addressed immunity from civil suit, and all nine justices took care to emphasize that their reasoning did not extend to the criminal context. In sum, neither the Double Jeopardy Clause nor the Impeachment Judgment Clause prevent defendant who, while president was acquitted in impeachment proceedings for incitement, from being prosecuted after leaving office for different offenses. Part 6. Due Process Finally, defendant contends that the indictment violates the Due Process Clause because he lacked fair notice that his conduct was unlawful. A. Due Process Principles The Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment provides that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. To comply with due process, a law must give fair warning of the prohibited conduct. A law fails to give fair warning if the text of a statute is so unclear that it requires the judicial and executive branches to define what conduct is sanctionable and what is not, or a judge construes the statute in a manner that is clearly at variance with the statutory language. For instance, in 2015, the Supreme Court concluded that the residual clause of the Armed Career Criminal Act violated due process because it was so vague and difficult to administer that defendants lacked notice of how it would be applied in any given case. The court explained that the residual clause required judges to imagine an ordinary case involving the crime with which the defendant was charged and compare the defendant's actions to that ordinary case. It further emphasized that its repeated attempts and repeated failures to craft a principled and objective standard out of the residual clause confirmed its hopeless indeterminacy, noting that the clause had caused numerous splits among the lower federal courts. A statute does not fail to give fair warning just because it does not mean the same thing to all people, all the time, everywhere. Since words, by their nature, are imprecise instruments, 
laws may have gray areas at the margins without violating due process. Indeed, statutes are rarely found unconstitutional because their text fails to give fair warning. Applying a novel judicial construction of a statute may also fail to give fair warning if it unexpectedly broadens the statute's reach and applies that expanded reach retroactively. In Bowie, for example, defendants were convicted of violating a state law prohibiting entry upon the lands of another after notice from the other prohibiting such entry after they remained on premises after being asked to leave, even though they did not re-enter the premises. The Supreme Court held that the state Supreme Court's construction of the statute failed to give the defendants fair notice because it was clearly at variance with the statutory language and had not the slightest support in prior state decisions. B. The incitement does not violate due process. Defendant had fair notice that his conduct might be unlawful. None of the criminal laws he is accused of violating require the executive or judicial branch to guess at the prohibited conduct, nor does finding that the indictment complies with due process require the court to create a novel judicial construction of any statute. Defendant notes that the principle of fair notice has special force in the First Amendment context. While that may be true, even special force does not place defendant's alleged conduct outside the plain language of the charged statutes, as he alleges. First, his argument does not contrast the allegations in the indictment with the plain language of the statutes, but instead attempts to recast the factual allegations in the indictment itself as no more than routine efforts to challenge an election. But again, at this stage, the court must take the allegations in the indictment as true. The fact that defendant disputes the allegations in the indictment do not render them unconstitutional. Second, the meaning of statutory terms need not be immediately obvious to an average person. Indeed, even trained lawyers may find it necessary to consult legal dictionaries, treatises, and judicial opinions before they may say with any certainty what some statutes may compel or forbid. And due process does not entitle defendant to advance warning that his precise conduct is unlawful so long as the law plainly forbids it. Defendant also claims he lacked fair notice because there is a long history of government officials publicly claiming that election results were tainted by fraud or questioning election results, yet he is the first person to face criminal charges for such core political behavior. But there is also a long history of prosecutions for interfering with the outcome of elections. That history provided defendant with notice that his conduct could be prosecuted. Indeed, the Supreme Court has addressed more than one case in which officials were prosecuted for interfering with or discarding election ballots. In addition, none of the contested elections defendant invokes is analogous to this case. 
As noted above, defendant is not being prosecuted for publicly contesting the results of the election. He is being prosecuted for knowingly making false statements in furtherance of a criminal conspiracy and for obstruction of election certification proceedings. And in none of these earlier circumstances was there any allegation that any official engaged in criminal conduct to obstruct the electoral process. For instance, following the 2004 presidential election, Representative Stephanie Tubbs-Jones raised an objection to Ohio's electoral votes at the joint session. Senator Boxer signed the objection. As Representative Jones explained in a separate session, that objection was to allow a necessary, timely, and appropriate opportunity to review and remedy the right to vote. Ohio's electoral votes were then counted for President Bush. Defendant points to no allegation that Representative Jones's objection was in furtherance of a criminal conspiracy or designed to obstruct the electoral process. Moreover, even if there were an analogous circumstance in which an official had escaped prosecution, the mere absence of prior prosecution in a similar circumstance would not necessarily mean that defendant's conduct was lawful or that his prosecution lacks due process. The exclusive authority and absolute discretion to decide whether to prosecute a case, within bounds, is a cornerstone of the executive branch. Finally, defendant argues that, for the indictment to comply with due process, the prosecution bears the burden to provide examples where similar conduct was found criminal. Under that theory, novel criminal acts would never be prosecuted. The Constitution does not so constrain the executive branch. Part 7. Conclusion For the foregoing reasons, the court will deny defendant's motion to dismiss indictment based on presidential immunity and motion to dismiss the indictment based on constitutional grounds. A corresponding order will accompany this memorandum opinion. Tanya S. Chutkin, United States District Judge We've come to the end of this memorandum opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.